Thought Leadership from PwC. Today we're back talking ESG, this time with a look at what respondents said in their comments on the ISSB's disclosure proposals. This is PwC's accounting podcast. More so than ever, you can't wait and say, oh, I'll check in in a year or a couple months time and see what's happened. A lot is going to happen at each of the upcoming meetings because these standards, based on sort of the timelines regulators have set, need to be done really quickly. Things have been moving so quickly that things do change. So don't assume that something you read two or three months ago is still appropriate. So try and keep abreast to be able to understand what the latest is in relation to what's going on. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a big year for sustainability reporting. And together with the SEC and FRAG, the ISSB, or International Sustainability Standards Board, has been making news with proposed reporting standards. While not currently mandatory, the standards of the ISSB are expected to form the groundwork for many jurisdictions' mandatory sustainability reporting. In addition, respondents to all three proposals called for some sort of global framework, and as such, the ISSB is definitely one to watch. In March, the ISSB released proposed disclosure standards for public comment. The comment period for the proposed standards closed on July 29th, and hundreds of companies, individuals, associations, and agencies responded. Today, we're bringing our listeners a conversation on the contents of those comments. That's what Andreas Ohl, our frequent guest and PwC's Global Sustainability Topic Team Leader, and Katie Woods, a director on the Global Sustainability Topic Team, are here to cover. Andreas and Katie have lots to share with our listeners, so let's get started. Andreas, Katie, welcome to the podcast. So nice to be able to record in person with you both today as we talk about the ISSB. And specifically, we're going to have a two-part, in a way, podcast today. We were originally planning to just talk about the ISSB comment letters, but perfect timing, the ISSB met this week. And so we are actually going to have an opportunity to talk a bit about the meeting as well. Now, maybe, Andreas, I know one of the things you and I often talk about is sometimes for a U.S. audience, they wonder how applicable can this be for me? And, you know, I think from my perspective, hopefully listeners, if you're listening, you already know it's applicable. But nonetheless, you want to give a little pitch for why they should care? I think there's maybe two ways. One is the SEC in their process asked about to what extent should ISSB reporting be permitted or required in order to comply with those rules. And we don't know what they're going to do with the feedback they've received. Um, But probably the more important thing is that uh, many U.S. companies have operations overseas. And for better or worse, multiple jurisdictions are working on sort of sustainability reporting requirements. And some of those will happen at the subsidiary level. So it's quite possible that a U.S. public company will report under the SEC requirements, but then also have to report with respect to some of its overseas operations under a different framework. And at least some countries are considering ISSB to be that uh, that framework. So multinationals will, unfortunately, for some period of time, maybe have to apply multiple frameworks. 
Right. And we can't forget CSRD since uh, that is something we keep talking about with our listeners, but we won't talk about that too much further today. But maybe then just as a reminder again, is uh, the ISSB did issue two uh, draft standards, two exposure drafts. And so that was the general requirements for disclosure of sustainability related financial information. So S1, which is how we're going to refer to it today. And then the climate related disclosures, which are S2. And those exposure drafts were both issued in March and then the comment letter period closed in July. Now we've talked before on the podcast that the SEC got over 14,000 comment letters, but to be fair, there was a lot of form letters in there, more than 11,000. Uh, and I do know that the ISSB actually did get, especially for uh, an IFRS foundation, because I'll clump it in with the ISB, a number of responses. So Katie, welcome. Hello. Uh, and how many responses did we see? Yeah, well, not as much as, as they received in the US. Um, and that's not that surprising based on the data you've just given us. But there were just under 1,000 um responses that came in, that's sort of individuals, associations, agencies, those sort of areas. Um, and of those responses, there were a number that had split between the, as you referred to them, the S1 and the S2 exposure drafts. So it was a little difficult to work out exactly how many different people responded, but it's really encouraging to see that many responses to something which is so new from the international stage, this new uh, board, this new set of exposure drafts. Um, and so the exposure drafts, um, the response letters came through on the 29th of July, although I think there were a few more after that date that came in after that. Um, and it's helpful to see that so many different people were involved. So across the network. And I think that's probably, to Andreas's point, because people are suddenly becoming aware that they're going to have to start uh, reporting under these sorts of standards. No, I agree. I think it's fantastic that there are so many responses. Uh, so then, Katie, I know your team um, did some assessment of the response letters, and in we're going to talk about some of those findings today. But maybe before we do, just again, level set from a scope point of view, I know you said there's lots of different types of respondents. So in particular, which respondents did we focus on when we looked at the letters? Yeah, so we looked primarily at those uh, preparers, agencies, and auditors, and regulators. So those who we thought may well have some sort of skin in the game in relation to then what happens next. So those were the, the ones that we looked at. Um, we did a lot of reading. Uh, we did some clever AI stuff as well, which helped us to identify some of the, the words that were used time and again in the responses. Um, and, a, a, and some really interesting outcomes in relation to, to that review that we did. All right, I'm going to come back to the words. But before I do, let's sort of provide broad context. And one of the things that stood out to me actually when I reviewed the SEC comment letter responses is the number of respondents that said they supported the ISSB standards. And in particular, or maybe if they didn't call out the ISSB, some type of global baseline, global standards or otherwise, and I'll, there'll be a little bit of theme of that today. So do we see the same type of support when we looked at these letters? Yeah, absolutely. We did. There was a uh, really strong support for that global baseline so that the IWSB made in its uh, very clear in its objective that it wanted to be that global baseline 
which could then be built on to the extent that local or uh, regulatory requirements could, could build onto that. So really strong. And the other thing that came from that global baseline was then this need for collaboration. So to the extent you refer to the SEC responses of wanting to collaborate with the global baseline, absolutely heard that from the IWSB responses as well. Um, and so, and, and we were very supportive as well. I mean, we, we have gone out publicly saying how supportive we are in that respect. Um, and it's, it's got to be a good thing. I would imagine at least part of that is driven by this idea that companies may have to apply multiple frameworks. And so the more commonality you have, the I guess the easier it will be to do that and more cost effective it will be to do that. Yeah. Well, and agree, Andreas, and not just for preparers, but we've heard the same thing. And I know you are always focused on investors, but it's better for investors too, if they're not having to learn all these different frameworks and look at a bunch of disparate information. Right. If there's fundamental inconsistencies that, you know, we often think about cost to the uh, to the preparer community. There's also cost to users when you have inconsistent reporting and they have to now in their modeling reconcile that. That's just extra time and effort on their part. Exactly. So one of the things that, again, we saw with the SEC comment letters is that, you know, even supportive letters had a lot of recommendations. And I know you found the same thing here, but this is where maybe the AI would be interesting, Katie. I'm just curious, what words, were there some key words that stood out when you looked at the responses? Yeah, absolutely. There were. Um, And so the four that we might pick up on, and perhaps we can explore a little bit, uh, were interoperability, a word that I learned as we started responding to this. So this is the working between the different standard setters. Uh, Greenwashing, which we all see from a lot of the press uh, reference to greenwashing and, and what the impact of that might be. Safe harbour provisions, which I found quite interesting because there is obviously some concern about giving too much information, which may be unhelpful to the way in which a business is being run. So maybe we could explore that a bit. And then proportionality. So the ability to for all to be able to present or disclose the information that's being requested. And this is a one-time situation where everybody, every different area is looking at bringing in these standards. So to my, in my opinion, this is pretty unique of the ability to do that. Yeah. So Katie, maybe let's start with Safe Harbor because one of the things that I find interesting and that we, I didn't preface this with, but we could have, is that the ISSB right now is not mandated in any particular jurisdiction and whether or not it's mandated and attestation requirements will both be the local jurisdiction. But Safe Harbor also, to me at least, feels more like a local jurisdiction type of thing. And I don't know, Andreas, do we have a broader view on that? Is my thinking right? Yeah, I think the local regulator would have to grant safe harbor, you know, basically the idea that, uh, you know, this is a big transition and for certain elements of it, you know, we'll talk about scope three later being maybe the one that I think probably people cited the most often that it's not as well developed in practice and you want to provide an incentive for people to disclose that information without them worrying that given the fact that maybe that area of reporting was going to evolve a bit in the next few years that they don't have liability for you know doing the best they can as that ecosystem improves. I mean, I often kind of describe this sustainability reporting almost like every company in the world is going public at the same time because they're 
entering into this new reporting regime like you do when you go from being a private company to being a public company where you have different rules, different level of scrutiny. And it's almost like that's happening, except everybody's doing it at essentially the same time. So that's a lot of strain on the ecosystem, shall we say? Yeah, that's definitely a great analogy there. And I think one of the things that almost goes to is Katie's point, the other word we saw of proportionality. And I'm ju- I know I'm jumping around a little on these, but maybe we can explain proportionality again and see what we heard from the respondents. Yeah, of course. So proportionality is really the ability of, we take it at entity level, we can take it at country level, we could take it wider as, as area level, of the ability to get ready and be able to present the information that is being requested. And so, as, as Andreas mentioned, this is everybody is being required to look and present this information. And certainly juris- certain jurisdictions are far more ready for that mm-hmm. than others. And so some are already collecting the data. Some are already bringing together information about, you mentioned greenhouse gases, they're bringing that information together. But there will be other areas where they're developing, the developing countries that just won't have that information. And is it uh, realistic to expect them to do so? Um, and so proportionality was having realistic expectations of disclosure uh, and scalability to be able to scale up that information to the extent that investors, users of the, fi- or the non-financial, the financial, the su- sustainability information are really needing. So I'll give a small spoiler alert because I also did meet with Marty McBrien and um, we'll be airing that podcast next week. But she talked about some of the efforts that the ISSB is doing in the area of proportionality and, and very interesting. So definitely listeners, check out next week's podcast to hear more on that. All right, let me go back to the words. So interoperability, Katie, I think you anticipated my question because you did give a brief definition. But what did we hear on interoperability and and how would you kind of recommend people think about this? So interoperability is goes back to that point again that Andreas mentioned, that if you're a multinational entity who is aware of all of these different proposed frameworks you don't want to be disclosing for each of the different framework uh, the information that's required. So that interoperability is to say we want to be able to utilize or have similar or the same, even better, disclosures that cover all, so address all of the needs. And you know of 120 comment letters Uh, included reference to interoperability. So really important from the views of those who are coming in, that there is a need, I go back to that point, this is the, the one time that it's all coming in across the global network, they need to be doing the same thing, they need to be working on um, ensuring that disclosures are the same, so that those who are using information understand it. So then do we also think about the concept of interoperability with respect to accounting standards? Um, yes, I, th- I think we, well, not I think, we do. We need to, because there is a, a, an understanding of how accounting standards work. We've been working with them, well, some of us for quite a long time, um, and understand the principles behind them. And certainly if you've got the current uh, uh frameworks that are presenting those particular accounting standards and now moving into these other sustainability standards, 
we should have that interoperability. So if you're reading the front half versus the back half, it all makes sense. Otherwise, it's really going to confuse people. Um, so yes, interoperability across frameworks and within the framework of the, the accounting standard as well. Yes. And so I'm going to ask Andreas to chime in because Andreas, I know there's something you and I have spent quite a lot of time and something you have quite a lot of passion for. The fact that it's important that we have years of experience with the accounting standards, to Katie's point, thousands of pages of accounting standards and many issues that cross over. And so we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, well, I, I would come at it from a couple of different directions. So we made the point earlier about users, right? And not wanting to place undue cost on them. Well, if you start having fundamentally different presentation for effectively the same question in your sustainability reporting versus gap reporting, you're going to effectively force them to make adjustments to put it on the same basis. So the classic example being, you know, do you, um, if you acquire a business, do you present that only on a go forward basis, like from the day you control the business, or do you adjust the prior year figures? And people can debate which is better, but in the accounting world, we've decided you do it on a go forward basis. If you would say, well, for sustainability purposes, I'm going to do the, the opposite, then um, you're going to have lack of comparability between your financial figures and your uh, ESG reporting. And so if you think about just a simple implication of that is, so some people are going to require, some of the standard setters or regulators are going to require intensity metrics. So how much emissions do you have per dollar of revenue? Well, if your revenue and your emissions are not on the same basis, then that is not going to be a very help. So now you're going to have to do some sort of a pro forma of mm -hmm. that of some sort. And you just add a whole nother level of complexity. But your point that most of these standards, including ISSB, they don't address all of these questions that we've dealt with. Like this question I just raised with the business combinations, right. it doesn't tell you what to do. Um, so a logical thing to do would be to say, well, if it's silent, do I look to the accounting mm -hmm. framework or do I just create a new policy <laughs> for everything? Yes. And if you did that, would I then need a whole description in my sustainability report of here's a whole separate set of policies on how I dealt with all of these things? And then you user go figure out whether it is the same or not as the policy note that we're all used to seeing in the financial statements and looking for nuanced differences in the wording to see are they or aren't they. Like you could just see how this would potentially right. take you down a bit of a bit of a doom loop. Well, especially because I think all of the standard setters have said, and when I say all, I'm the SEC, so regulator, um, FRAG, and the ISSB have said comparability is one of the objectives here. And so then if even if you're reporting the same number, but if you're reporting it, ca calculating a completely different way, that is not very comparable. Yep. I would agree. Yeah. So then, Andreas, uh, you know, I, I had sort of a visceral reaction when you said in, uh, intensity metrics that are, you know, there's a different basis there because just as an accountant, that just troubles me. But one of the areas where we've talked about differences that's gotten a lot of play is on the operational boundaries and what entities are going to be reported. And I know something we talk about in our SEC context, what did we see in the ISSB proposal, just to remind people, and then what reaction did we hear? Yeah, so again, boundary meaning, you know, in, in the accounting sense, it's which entities are included in the consolidated financial statements, i.e. those that you control under at least US GAAP and IFRS. Um, you know, what should you do in the sustainability um, reporting? And sort of the way the ISSB 
exposure drafts work is for um, emissions, so scope one, two, three, you would look to the greenhouse gas protocol, and that has at least three different ways that you could determine what the organizational boundary is. One is sort of basically the same as the financial reporting boundary, and then there's two others that are are somewhat uh, are somewhat different. Um, but with respect to kind of everything else, so any other um, ESG metrics that you would report, you would follow the um, the financial reporting boundary, which is uh, kind of what the SEC says you should do to follow the report financial reporting boundary for, I guess, for everything. Yes. Yeah. I think that's an important point. The SEC was very clear that it wants to follow financial reporting. And because of this consistency issue was a big part of their reasoning. So, uh, but to go on. So from an ISSB point of view, then what did we hear from the respondents? So I I think it was fairly mixed um, where, you know, some people like the ability to follow the greenhouse gas protocol because they've been doing that for a for a long time. And and there's certainly some merit to that. I mean, I think maybe the little bit of a pushback I would give, as you mentioned earlier, we have all these books and everything with years of kind of, I'll call it case law on how to apply the financial reporting consolidation model. Well, people have been doing the greenhouse gas protocol for a long time. It's been done in kind of an unaudited, unregulated sort of space. So while there's experience in practice, you don't have those books of, Mm -hmm. you know, or logs of, you know, extensive debates where things have been challenged and we know what the final resolution, like you don't have that case law, I guess is probably the, <laughs> the, the best way to describe it. But certainly it was mixed as to, you know, some people want to keep doing what they've been doing or, you know, see the merits of maybe those models work, uh, work better in certain circumstances. Um, you know, and then the, the flip side being, well, do you really want a world where some of your ESG reporting is on the same basis as financial reporting, but then some of it is not? And how easily can you explain that so users don't get confused that not everything in your report is for the same entities, which we don't have that concept in financial reporting. You don't say, well, revenue is for all of my controlled subsidiaries, but... um, but my cost of sales is on some other, like, like that's not even a thing, right? So you wonder, can the ecosystem sort that out when you have metrics not all on the same sort of right. basis, right? Well, and I think as an accountant, I already saw this a little painful. Um, I will say we did see the same mix of responses with the SEC respondents. And, you know, the other point on this, I'll call it, argument against just sticking with the greenhouse gas protocol is that, you know, you could say the same thing when we adopted a new revenue standard, but I've been doing the old standards for years. Like, don't make me change now. And so it almost feels like now would be the easiest time to change versus when everyone's done it, they've done all this additional work, et cetera. So anyway, I think our listeners probably know PwC's point of view on this. (laughs) We can move on. We were all cringing. We were all cringing. (laughs) Yeah. So we could definitely go on. All right. So then Katie, let me go back to you. I think I, did I hit, oh no. Sorry, one more of the terms, and then I just want to go through some other observations from the letter. Now, greenwashing, I know, was another term that was mentioned. That's a little more difficult. So what was the comp in terms of like a specific recommendation? So what context were those comments made in? I think the general point here was in the context of materiality. And so avoiding information being disclosed, which might be misleading to those utilizing 
the standards or sorry utilizing the the reports be that the investors or or other people because these sort this information that's in required by these proposals we know is going to be looked at by more than just the investors that's a whole different materiality debate but i think the point that came through from the respondents was we have to be so careful people are going to be reading this inf- information be that about the greenhouse gases that are coming out or indeed as we move into the future of of social elements that are going to be reported because S1 actually covers all but climate, the disclosures that are required. And so ensuring that the information is is correct, is clear, is not obscured by detail and detail and detail so people can't pick up the correct information. And greenwashing is a well-known, uh, used by the media, so would pick up and people would be worried that that was, that was coming through. So that was my take on, on the reference to greenwashing and as the respondents said, said what they said. Yeah, and I think this is another point we've been talking about on the podcast when I had Hillary and Mark on last week. They also talked a little bit about how unintentional greenwashing can occur by maybe overplaying something like it, it is something you're doing, but it's relatively small in the overall scheme of things or otherwise. So anyway, I do think it's important to guard against because if we want people to use this information together with the financial information, you need to make sure it's free of bias as well. So, Katie, it's almost like you knew my next question, because um, some of the general questions I had, my own questions from uh, looking at the proposals and the comment letters, would the first one would be what we heard about materiality. Mm-hmm. So materiality, again, there were mixed comments. I'm sure we've all heard and you've also talked about this concept of financial materiality in the context of the International Sustainability Standards Boards, the IWSB proposals and the SEC proposals. Whereas from the European perspective, they're looking wider and talking about double materiality. It's not an area. I think double materiality is a, a bit of a an overused word, if I'm honest. But um, so some respondents were saying we've got to go down the route of financial materiality. This is in the the normal remit of the IFRS Foundation. It's in their DNA. This is the way we have to go. <clears throat> and then if there are additional disclosures that are required to identify the impact which is the other side of of the double materiality, the impact of certain areas, then we know that the IWSB has a memorandum of understanding with a GRI and those GRI standards, not 100% sure how they're going to be brought in, but those GRI standards would deal with that wider impact. So that was some respondents. Others, and it's kind of linked in with the interoperability, are saying, look, Europe are going down this financial and impact materiality route. In order for that consistency, we need to have the double materiality approach from an IWSB perspective. Um, having listened to some of the debates and listened to people who have responded, you could argue both ways. And I, I've been brought up through the IFRS reporting um, arena. I am probably more inclined, personal opinion, for financial materiality with the add-on. But it, it is quite compelling 
at looking at that impact materiality and understanding that there is more than just the investors that are using and understanding this information. So does that give you an idea of the, I've not given you a clear answer, I know, but it, it gives you an idea of, of, of the sort of things that came through in the letters. Well, I think your reference to not a clear answer is perfect because this is a difficult area to talk about. And Andreas, I think one of the places, this might be a helpful place to provide some perspective as our listeners are thinking about materiality. I know something you've spent a lot of time thinking about. I think we need to have a whole separate podcast, but any observations overall that you would make? Well, one thing maybe is just to level set a little bit, because when we talk about materiality here, one of the reasons we talk about it is if you contrast maybe the European proposal to the ISSB, one of the differences is this double materiality concept. But even more fundamentally, the European proposal has a long list of things that you must disclose. The ISSB proposal is very different in the sense that it tells you conceptually how you think about what you should disclose, and then you need to go figure out what those things are. And materiality is, or you know, they had the word significance in there, which now I think they've decided to strike, but is sort of the mechanism in, in S1 that you apply in order to figure out what do I need to disclose? Because it doesn't have, you know, the climate standard does say you need to disclose mm-hmm. greenhouse gas emissions, and we'll get to that in a minute. But um, but it doesn't have a long list of required disclosures like an accounting standard might or like um, the European proposal does. So you have to apply this lens to decide what is it that I need to disclose, which is Different than if you think about accounting, where it's sort of you pretty much have to disclose revenue unless you're, I don't know, a bank. Um, You have to disclose, you know, there's a bunch of things that like they don't have to tell you. uh, They don't have to provide you with a mechanism to figure that out. You kind of know that, well, I have to have net income. I have to have taxes. (laughs) You know, it's sort of it. it, You don't even think about it. Right. Um, You're thinking more about materiality in terms of, you know, is something meaningfully different than it, you know, than it should be, or at the margin, do I have to add one more line to my PL? S1 is more like you need to have a you need to have a disclosure about everything that matters. And I'll use that term because they're so we no no one's gonna actually use that word and then say, well, how do you define everything that matters, mm-hmm. right? But that that's sort of the this it's sort of this very preliminary thing you have to think about to figure out what is it actually that I need to disclose. And to Katie's point, I think one of the things is you don't want to overdo it on disclosure because then you end up maybe obscuring what truly is important by having too much clutter that's not important. Or to the greenwashing point, you disclose something that portrays the company in a favorable light, but in the grand scheme of things is not very significant. You know, the fact that you have this great story on how you reduced emissions at this one plant by 95%, if that's one of a thousand plants mm-hmm. and you didn't reduce emissions at any of the other ones, probably talking about that, unless that's a scalable solution that you're now going to, over the next five years, roll out at the other 999 plants, probably gives a misleading um, story. And I think that's really what the standard is designed to avoid. And it's just a question of how do you best describe that so people go, ah, I get it, and can now apply it consistently in uh, in practice. Yeah, I think, Andreas, it's a really helpful explanation because I do think that point has been lost a little bit in some of the conversation about this potential for what else is going to be required by S1. I also think 
that may be the first time the word clutter has been used in the context of financial <laughs> statements, but honestly, kind of perfect in this this uh, situation and, and definitely helped me visualize why this could be a problem. So, so excellent analogy there, or excellent word choice, I should say. All right. I have one more question on the comment letters and then definitely want to get into what was talked about this week because I think there were a few surprises. So we've really been talking, well, we've been talking about both, but just focusing on the S1 exposure draft. Anything specific, Katie, that you would highlight about the S2 exposure draft? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest aspects of the S2 exposure draft is its cross-reference through an appendix to the SASB guidance. Um, In the context of industry disclosures, there is a cross-reference and an implication Um, The wording in the proposed standard is shall consider disclosing information from the SASB standards in relation to industry guidance. Um, There is a lot of support in the response letters, but there was also pushback. And that pushback kind of identified the fact that these hadn't been through a similar due process to perhaps other standards that you might refer to. So, the final point I'd probably make about the, the specifics on the SASB is that that mandating of using SASB standards, a lot of people felt that, that it was too quick. Um, there were a lot of SASB standards. There were 77 that were included in the appendix. And actually to require companies to pick on a particular one or I know SASB does actually refer to how you deal with more than one when you've got a, a conglomerate, but but ex- the expectation that mandating that for companies that haven't previously been giving all of that information was probably going a step too far. So um, that that certainly was was one of the areas. The final area that I just talk about is the cross reference to the greenhouse gas protocol, the GHG protocol, uh, and the use of that protocol for identifying the scope one, scope two, and scope three um, uh, emissions and disclosing those. And again, asking or or requiring disclosure of one, two, and three in the proposals. So quite a lot in S two, which goes over and above that that's required in S one. All right. Very helpful. So I know that uh, some of the points you just talked about were actually talked about in the meetings this week. Industry standards in particular are being talked about even as we're recording. So that will have to be a subject for a future podcast. But the first two days of the meetings, um, plenty for us to cover. So Andreas, maybe I'll go to you first. And there are a few standout items for me that I'll ask you both about, and then we can see if anything else you want to highlight. But first one, and it's something we asked, have not spoken about yet um, from the comment letters, but it's enterprise value. And in particular, a change in how that's going to be considered in the standards. Now, maybe to give context, we should explain what the standards proposed standards said, and then now what this proposed change is. Sure. So the, the standard as currently, or the exposure drafts as written are very oriented to enterprise value. I think if you do a word search between the two of them, it appears like 40 or 50 or 60 times, which I think might be more times than it appears in the entirety of US GAAP, which is whatever it is, many thousands of pages as opposed to these two together or 120 or 30 pages. So clear orientation towards that term. But it, But again, it was sort of this idea that the mission here is primarily information for investors and investors think about, I want information that investors trying to figure out what do I think enterprise value is and where do I think enterprise value is going to go in the future for a particular enterprise. Um, and so 
financial reporting and now sustainability reporting is supposed to help a um, an investor make those judgments. And so that was sort of the entire orientation of the IASSB as well as, and that's very much evident in the way the standards were written. Um, there was a lot of feedback, I would say, on on that concept. But the way I would characterize the feedback, including in our in our letter, um, was that people had some questions where they were looking for some clarifications as to how exactly to apply that. You know, there, there's obviously a fair value concept in financial reporting that uses some of the same concepts and terminology, and how how much of that body of knowledge do do we mean to import here versus you know perhaps taking some different perspectives because that unlike what we talked about earlier with close alignment that maybe that does or doesn't make sense in in this particular case so that's kind of the way the feedback was um in i would describe it in general um at the board meeting this week um they have appear to have decided that uh, maybe enterprise value isn't the best um, orientation that they would introduce a, a different concept, which would be coming out of integrated reporting where there's this concept of, uh, of capitals and there's six of them and that that's sort of a way to think about like value drivers effectively. Um, and I know some companies have applied integrated reporting, particularly in Europe for some period of time Um I'm not real well versed in that uh, in that framework, so there's only so much I can comment <laughs> on it right now. But I guess I would say, at least preliminarily, you know, that would be a pretty significant change, and we'll have to go back and sort of look at that framework and how it's applied. And there are no doubt, like with any framework, some challenges or questions in terms of how you actually apply it. Um, to really formulate a view on is this a better path forward or, you know, would clarifying some of the things in the, the way it's currently drafted, is that a, is that a better, uh, is that a better path? Hey guys, it's Heather. I'm jumping in here because I recorded the conversation with Andreas and Katie the same day as the ISSB's last day of board meetings, so last Friday. In those discussions, the ISSB covered some of their plans related to sector reporting and also finalized a decision to clarify some of the concepts of materiality within the proposal. For this update and other items coming out of their meetings last week, See the link in the show notes to the October 21 press release. So Andreas, uh, I also am not an expert on that framework. And it does feel a little like it came out of the blue in terms of them looking to that. I mean, maybe you can provide some context for the listeners of why that may be where they went and looked when they decided to move away from enterprise value. Well, sure. So the um, ISSB, um, I guess, merged effectively with the Value Reporting Foundation over the summer and the integrated reporting guidance that's been around for a long time was part of the Value Reporting Foundation. So the, you know, the people who put that together are now under the umbrella of the uh, ISSB. So th- no doubt that's why they may have looked there as opposed to just creating a fundamentally new concept or pulling something from some other framework someplace that there's some in-house um, knowledge, capability yeah. or knowledge around that, 
around that model. All uh, right. This is very helpful context. And uh, we'll include a link at least to the framework and the show notes. And then I think, you know, all of us will have to study up and see what we think uh, this might mean. So more to come on that. Now, second big one uh, relates to something, Katie, you mentioned, which is greenhouse gases. And I know there were also some discussion and decisions on um, what was going to be required for the greenhouse gas disclosure. So can you share on that? Yeah, of course. Um, so the question that was put to the board was whether um, or which scopes should be mandated, the disclosure of which scopes. And the conclusion that we've heard so far, obviously, we've talked about this, this is just what we've listened to, because it's it's what's just happened, is that the board concluded that they would expect scope one, scope two, and scope three, um, greenhouse gases to be disclosed. There were some permissions, perhaps for scope three, although it wasn't entirely clear whether that's a delay providing companies time to collate that data or whether other sort of um, permissions to, to not give that information straight away. Um, there was also confirmation that, that the greenhouse gas protocol would be the one that would be used. Um, other ways of measuring greenhouse gases are out there uh, and were referred to in the discussion and not completely shut down. But the, the structure of the protocol, I think, was the way forward. Um, and also not just the corporate protocol, but the, the wider supporting documents, again, were referred to not clear if they were going to be mandated. There's up to 300 pages of extra guidance not that different from some of the extra guidance that we use when we're applying financial reporting standards, but extra guidance to support. And I think we'll want to see the outcome of that discussion to really understand how the board expects those preparing this information, and then obviously those reviewing and reading the information, would get that to to the place that's needed. So um, clarity that all of the information is going to be required covering all three scopes, but perhaps we need to just wait and see to the extent that the, the protocol will be used or, or other permissions. All right. I think that's very helpful context, Katie. I will say, having spent time with these standards, I know it's extra pages, but if we go back to this objective of comparability and consistency, I think in this case, it could only help in terms of people kind of calculating off the same basis and given some of the complexities with scope three, but I guess it remains to be seen mm-hmm. what exactly we're going to see from the board. And I do think it's a very good point you made, and I'll just re-emphasize, this was all discussion. Mm-hmm. This is not final decisions. And it's just based off a listen. It's not even the board's kind of, you know, what they've put out about the meeting. So clearly some of this could change and it could change in subsequent meetings as well. Now, Andreas, one more point, and then again, I'll open it up for questions. But I know Another area which sounds like there may be a change is related to changes in estimates. And, you know, every good accountant knows you change an estimate as long as the estimate was properly prepared based on all available information and is reasonable and documented and talk about controls if I was in my audit hat, uh, that then you just update it when you get more information. It sounds like they may be going in a different direction for this um, sustainability information. So what are they considering? Yeah, so er- earlier we said that, you know, in general, the standards don't tell you what to do for most of the concepts that are concepts that also exist in the financial reporting world. So to your point, you know, errors and changes in um, methods, you generally go 
back and restate the prior year and changes in estimates, you change going forward. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's always a, are you sure you're in the right bucket? Yes. <laughs> that's a, that would be a whole nother topic. Um, but yeah, as, as written right now, it says that, uh, you know, if you have a change in estimate, you, you would go back and adjust, which would be different than accounting. And look, there's a whole bunch of reasons why accounting landed where it, uh, where it did. And without, we don't want to get too technical, but not all of those directly carry over to, uh, ESG reporting because you don't have things like opening retained earnings and, you know, things that maybe make you think about it a little differently. You know, like we said earlier, some things translate really well across where you say you probably like the boundary where maybe you should get to the same for both. Um, But others, it's not quite as 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 clear uh, as clear cut. Um, So on this one, it seems that because I think some people push back on that a little bit, that they've had a bit of a rethink and are, you know, maybe contemplating a, a different approach. But it, I don't think that different approach is as straightforward as just do everything prospective. And so they're talking about maybe creating some sort of a, a filter of sorts to decide which way should you go, um, which, you know, may make sense, but... Um, it is another complexity of another judgment that you'll have to make. And, you know, what would the criteria be to determine when you go retrospective versus um, versus prospective? Yeah. And you can see some places where that could very quickly get complicated. If in the financials, there's estimates that are related to the financial statements in some way and this information and different treatments and otherwise, but I guess more to come yeah, on that point. Well, but maybe one point I would make that's another one of these sort of like macro points is that not that financial reporting is easier by any by any stretch, but one way to think about this is financial reporting is like 80% historical and 20% forward looking. ESG reporting is almost the other way around where it has a lot more of a forward looking mm-hmm. element, which by definition means you're going to have more estimates mm-hmm. and more challenging estimates. So this could be a much more profound issue than it is with uh, financial reporting. Before even later on, we have decades of experience of, you know, anyone who has to make a warranty accrual, they have this huge body of historical mm-hmm. experience that, yes, it's an estimate, but, you know, you have a fair amount of institutional knowledge that makes that a different estimate than if you're estimating something for the first time or for the first time in a regulated environment. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth mentioning as well that the the, the decision to re-deliberate this isn't there that was made was made in these meetings. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing yet, as you say. There's more to come on it, Andreas, rather than any sort of decision. Yes, as yet, definitely seems like something to pay attention to. So I have many more questions. As always, I have too many questions for our time. But so maybe I'll give you each just an open-ended question to wrap things up, and that would just be anything else from either the letters or the meetings. Or my standard question would be, what advice would you give to listeners in terms of what they should or could be doing now? So, Katie, I'll go to you first. Mm, thanks, Heather. <laughs> no, no preparation time then. Okay, so I think what I would suggest to people is to keep abreast of, of what is being discussed. Now, I know that's really difficult. There is so much being discussed and by so many different people. We've got some great good summaries, but yeah. I'll, I'll just put that to the side. Um 
because things are changing quickly. And we've seen this through all of the ESG reporting proposals, that things have been moving so quickly that things do change. So don't assume that something you read two or three months ago is still appropriate. So try and keep abreast and, and listen to your wonderful podcast to be able to, to um, understand what the latest is in relation to what's going on. Excellent. Andreas, what would you add? Well, maybe I'll build on what uh, what Katie just said, which is you know, I was meeting with someone at the IASB this morning, a senior person. We were joking about how, you know, between when the revenue project started and when the final company implemented it was like it spanned like almost my entire partner career, which is not short. <laughs> um, all of this is going to happen really, really quickly. So we're talking about these redeliberations. They're not going to go on for four years. So like a lot is going to happen at each individual meeting from a like fundamental decision-making perspective. So more so than ever, you can't wait and say, oh, I'll check in in a year or a couple months time and see what's happened. A lot is going to happen at each of the upcoming meetings because these standards based on sort of the timelines regulators have set need to be done really quickly. They don't have two years to re-deliberate and send the staff out to do lots of research. Um, the other thing, maybe a little advertisement. Um, you know, I think after listening to this, there's maybe a little bit of uncertainty amongst our, um, amongst our listener community. And we are going to publish a number of things in the next three or four months where Look, we can't say, and the answer definitively is X, partially because the standards are silent, partially because they're still moving, but to try to start to bring some, hey, this might be a way to think about it, and here's some compelling reasons why you might want to do it that way, particularly in the areas where the standard doesn't say, and you must do X, because it, there are very few of those, and we can sort of navigate around them, but I think people will find those um, very useful. Yes, and actually, I will share with our listeners, we did not rehearse this part at all, but we all built on each other because my point that I would make is notwithstanding the fact everything's moving, don't wait. And these resources that Andreas talked about in terms of how to start thinking about some of them will help. And so look for those. But even with that, even with some of these moving targets, you know, if you think you're going to be subject to any one of these regimes or otherwise, like we know, um, you know, UK companies, TCFD requirements, and there's other countries with requirements, you cannot wait. You need to start now and, you know, just start with the things you think are going to be there, you know, are going to be there, controls, processes, et cetera. So I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. But Katie, Andreas, thank you so much. So nice to have you with me today. Thanks for joining me. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. 
This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.